Joseph, thank you for that extra measure so I could fetch my coffee. It's good looking out. Thank you. All right, y'all, we'll be in uh, the book of Matthew again this morning, chapter 5, going through the Beatitudes. We're at verse 6. So if you remember, Jesus has escaped the crowds of people. He's gone away up onto a mountain. His disciples have gathered around him, and he's teaching them what the kingdom of God is like. And he's beginning by talking about what we said last week, the condition of the building blocks that he's setting against himself, the cornerstone of his church. And one of the things that he says, verse 6, is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessedness and happiness in the Bible aren't things that we get by looking for them. They're things that are awarded to us when we seek something else that God instructs us to seek. We, we, don't, we don't hunger and thirst for blessedness. We don't hunger and thirst for, for happiness. Righteousness and blessing is found there. The main idea of the sermon this morning is righteousness is something the Christian always has enough of to save him, but never enough to satisfy him. Righteousness is something the Christian always has enough of to save him, but never enough to satisfy him. It's a great mystery, really, that the ones who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness are the same ones who are filled with righteousness, and that the more they are filled, the more they hunger and thirst for it. There's a blessing there. I'm not sure any of us can really wrap our heads around this side of glory, but that doesn't make it any less true of the Christian life. The Christian life is filled with the righteousness of Christ, and that's what fuels the fire in the Christian to continue to pursue righteousness. You heard me say to the children a moment ago, we'll say it again several times before I'm done, Christ is righteousness. We're pursuing Christ himself. You know, see, we can hear the, the offer of salvation in the gospel, that it's a free gift. We hear that it's a free gift, that there's nothing we can do to earn it. It has to be given to us. And then we, we might say, well, that sounds too easy. There's got to be more to it than that. That just seems too easy. But then we look at God's law. And we see how impossible it is to keep. We see how far short we fall of God's righteous standard. And then we say it's too hard. It is too hard. And then we know no matter how hard we try, we could never reach that standard, that level of righteousness. And then this idea of salvation being a free gift starts to make sense, doesn't it? We know it can't possibly be any other way. But then we recognize our unworthiness of the gift, right? And so we try to make ourselves worth it and end up in legalism or works righteousness. Or we excuse our sin and remaining imperfection and end up in antinomianism, fancy word for lawlessness. Doesn't matter. Ticket's been punched. I don't need to, I don't need to worry about anything else. But this verse, y'all, this beatitude, as hard as it seems to wrap our minds around, it makes all of that make sense. We are perfect in Christ, and yet being made perfect. We hunger and thirst for the very thing we've already been filled with. You see that? We have tasted it. So how could we not want more of it? 
You see how that works? We're never satisfied. We never say, well, that's it. Draw the line. That's, that's enough righteousness for me. Thanks. No more. Stop right there, right? It's never enough for us. We've tasted it. We want more of it. And our want of it in and of itself is a blessing of God. And God blesses us with our heart's desire when our desire is righteousness. The more we want it, the more we get. And the more we get, the more we want it. That's the way this works. So that's why I say righteousness is something the Christian always has enough of to save him, but never enough to satisfy him. That's the main idea. And the best way I can think to divide that up is, is to look at the kind of righteousness the Bible talks about. What, what's in view here? What is it exactly that we're hungry and thirsty for? These won't all get equal airtime, okay? But there's three categories of righteousness that I think are worth considering that give us a fuller picture of what it is we're hungry and thirsty for. And the first is an alien righteousness, a righteousness that's not of ourselves. It's foreign to us. It's the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We'll get into that, okay? The second is a personal righteousness. It has to do with us becoming more righteous and living more holy lives, growing in holiness. And the third is a societal righteousness, all right? It's, it's the spread of the gospel making waves in the world in every sphere, in politics, business, entertainment, everything. The world reflecting the glory of God who made it, that kind of righteousness. So we'll get into all that. Just by way of introduction, though, this is a pivotal, this is a pivotal point in the Beatitudes. We'll see that as, as we go on. But this one's kind of like a hub that connects the others to each other. And I hope to start kind of unpacking that a little bit next week. You know, these Beatitudes, they build on one another, if you remember me saying that before. Uh, so if you're poor in spirit, like he says at first, right, and you, you, you're, you mourn over your sin, you are meek, you will hunger and thirst for righteousness. The, the first three create the appetite. If we understand our spiritual poverty before God, we're poor in spirit, we mourn over it and are meek because of it, then we will be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We'll want it. We'll know that we need it. We'll want it. We'll ask God for it. And he'll give it to us. So, as we start to get into this a little bit this morning, I was thinking of the song as I was preparing the sermon, the Rolling Stones, right? Who, who can miss it, right? I can't get no satisfaction. I mean, that's a layup, right? Um, but I mean, can, can't, doesn't that resonate with you? Can't you relate to that? You, you live enough years, you get enough experience under your belt, uh, you just find out, right, that uh, sometimes that itch can't get scratched. Maybe you scratched it three, four, 75 times, and it still itches. Just nothing seems to satisfy. And if you're here, through our series in Ecclesiastes, we talked about that a lot. There's just nothing under the sun that's designed to satisfy us on that level. So what, do you want satisfaction? You, you, you thirsty for it? Crave righteousness. You can crave other things. You just won't be satisfied. This craving, this longing, Jesus says, will be satisfied. 
Jesus talks about it in terms, of course, of hungering and thirsting. And you've got to think, his, uh, his direct audience, the people he's speaking to, were probably a little better acquainted with that than we are. You know? They probably went a long time between meals a, a number of times in, the, in their lives. And when they finally did get a meal, it was, sometimes it might have been quite small. Right? So this is hitting on all cylinders here. This hits home. People die without food and water. They get it. They're like, yeah, I've been there. I've been wondering when I'm going to eat again, whether I'm going to make it. It's a necessity, food and water, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. When you eat, you get hungry again, don't you? Like I said to the children a little bit ago, that, that glass of water is refreshing, but you're going to need refreshment again. We keep wanting it. But what we want here is not some righteousness. We want all righteousness. And I'm not going to geek out too hard and get into like a Greek grammar lesson this morning, but it is interesting if you look at sort of the intention and the verbs here. You know, when you hunger for something, you, you, you're, you're hungry for some of something. You follow me? You, you want a piece of bread, not all the bread. You, you want a, uh, a drink of water, not all the water, right? That of thing, that's missing here. This is a big thirst. This is a big hunger that says, I only want all of it. That's the kind of hunger and thirst God's people have for righteousness. A hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness for our sake. That's that alien righteousness. A hunger and thirst for our own righteousness, that personal righteousness as we desire to be more like him, and a righteousness for the world to reflect the character of the God who made it, that societal righteousness. It's a perfect righteousness that's identical to the very character of God. So how much do you want? Kind of turns the question around, how, how much do you want to be like him? A little bit? A lot of bit? All the way? The filling, the satisfaction, is Christ himself. Think about the woman at the well, right? That instance where Jesus is describing himself as the living water. He says, you know, you drink from this well, you'll be thirsty again, but I give water that's a living water that never runs out in John 4. In John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. How much of that bread and water do you want? You know, don't answer me. That'd be embarrassing, right? But do consider it for more than just a minute. Ask yourself that question this week. How much of it do you want? He's not holding it behind his back. He's not keeping it from you. How much do you want? You know, I think this verse, verse 6 in the Beatitudes, is an excellent test of maturity for the Christian. You, you may be a, a, a baby Christian, still kind of working out like who you are and just understanding your, your need for reconciliation with God and praise God that that has been done for you completely. But as you mature in Christ, it should be moving you, even if by inches, toward a stronger desire for righteousness. Stronger appeals to God for righteousness in yourself and in the world. 
We have six sons, as most of you know, right? The oldest one's only eight. They eat a lot. Can you imagine how much more they'll eat when they're all teenagers? Six teenagers? I don't know how it's going to work. We'll trust the Lord for that, right? But here's the point. As you grow, your appetite grows, doesn't it? So this is a good test for our maturity, our Christian maturity, spiritual maturity. As we grow, our appetite should grow. It's a good indicator of of the Lord's work in your life. These are natural desires for the Christian who has been made alive in Christ, right? Dead people don't get hungry. Dead people don't get thirsty, right? What does Ephesians 2 say about our condition before the Holy Spirit changes our heart? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, not sick. We didn't need to throw you like a a life jacket, right? We had to dig you up from the bottom of the ocean, a lifeless corpse, and give you life that you did not possess. That's what conversion is, right? Dead people aren't hungry, It makes sense that people who are not Christians would not hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Who cares, right? Dead people aren't thirsty. So this is a good place for you to check yourself. If you are a Christian professing faith in Christ, do you possess sort of these vital signs? We talked about that the first week. These vital signs of a a new life, one who has been born again by the Spirit of God. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? So there you go. What kind of righteousness now? We're getting into our points. And the first is an alien righteousness. And by alien, I'm obviously not talking about E.T., right? Not space aliens. I just mean a foreign righteousness, a righteousness from somewhere else, from someone else. We've said in the previous two sermons that the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount is the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus, right? So don't forget that. Jesus is this righteousness that we're talking about. It's the righteousness that saves us, this alien righteousness. It's his righteousness that saves us, not our own. It's foreign to us. It's outside of us. It had to be done for us. It comes to us by grace, and it was received with outstretched arms and empty hands of faith. That's this kind of righteousness. It's the kind that saves you. It justifies you. And we use that word a lot, right? Justification. That's an, that's an important word. That's, you know, that's not like a theologian top-shelf word. That's a, that's a word every Christian ought to have in, in your vocabulary, justification. It's a legal term. That means your legal guilt has been dealt with, and you have been declared righteous in the eyes of God. It means your guilt, your, your sin debt against God has been paid. Not, not excused, paid. It means your guilt, your, 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 your record, your guilty record was assigned to Jesus. It wasn't just ignored and put out of mind. It was put on Jesus, and he took the penalty. The penalty was never waived, right? Never forget that. Never forget that. The penalty for sin was never waived. The price of forgiveness was blood. As our brother Foster likes to say all the time, I love this, grace has blood on it. Grace has blood on it. But not only was your guilty sin debt paid, not only did Jesus get your record, here's the thing, you got his. 
That's what we're talking about, this alien righteousness. You got his perfect, spotless righteousness. You were judged based on his record of righteousness as if it were your own. He earned it. You you didn't. His righteousness was imputed to you. Okay? That's another Christian word that belongs in your vocabulary. Imputation. Imputation. Here's how it works. Adam's sin was imputed to you. Okay? You weren't in the garden with him when he sinned, but he wasn't just acting on his own behalf. He was man's representative in the earth. He acted as our federal head. He acted on behalf of all of us. Mankind in the world fell into the sin due to the sin of one man, Adam. And Jesus, born as the second Adam, becomes our federal head by faith. So you see how that works, right? You see it. By birth, Adam's sin is our sin. And by rebirth, Christ's righteousness is our righteousness. Your sin gets imputed to Christ, he takes it, and his righteousness is imputed to you. It's the great exchange. That's an alien righteousness. It doesn't originate with us. It's not ours, but it belongs to us. Strange as that seems. It's not ours, but it belongs to us, and it's enough to save us. It's all we'll ever need to be restored to a right relationship with God. The Christian always has enough righteousness to save him. It's an objective reality and and you're standing before God. But that's not all. There is a personal righteousness. The Christian always has enough righteousness to save him, but never enough to satisfy him. The filling, the blessing, the satisfaction for craving righteousness is filled both immediately, that's what we just got done talking about, and continually. If you think about Christ dying on the cross and you know he was there because of you, he was there to pay for your sin, you can be assured that you have been forgiven. His righteousness is yours. There's nothing left. There's nothing else to be satisfied. But the question then is, do you desire to be more like the one who satisfied that sin debt for you? Do you have a desire to be more like him? And this part in the Christian life is continual. It's progressive. It's a process. A desire for righteousness in greater measure than we have presently. Not for our salvation. We can't get any more saved than we already are. But there's a desire for holiness. We're not as holy at the time of our salvation uh, as, as we ever will be. We're not as holy now as we ever will be. Right? And that's okay. Question for this morning, though, is... Do you want to be? Right? Isn't that what we're talking about? The hunger and thirst? Is that there? Do we want to be? Do we want to be holy? Do we want to understand that although we are perfect in Christ, we still want to be made perfect in Him by the Spirit and knowing that process? Well, where's that happen? That's a good question, right? Where do I get that? Where, 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 can I, where can I have some of that? Sign me up for that, right? We know it's a work of the Spirit. We know we can't do it ourselves. We have to be acted upon by the Spirit. We're not making ourselves holy after all. He's making us holy. So where does it happen? Where do we show up? Where do we have to be when that happens so that we can get in on that? Well, one place is right here every Sunday. 
It happens here every Sunday. With the preached word of God, it happens in the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper, which we'll do next week. It happens in prayer. It happens here every Sunday. And it happens between Sundays right here in his word, as often as you go there to meet with him. That's where it happens. You know, this is where preachers get in trouble and get accused of, of uh, guilt tripping and stuff, right? But I trust y'all. Most of y'all know me. If I tell you, you should read your Bible, you're going to be mad at me. I mean, you should expect that from me, wouldn't you? Right? Isn't that good advice? <laughs> read your Bible. You know, I'm telling you that because I want you to feel bad about how you haven't done it. Or am I telling you because I sincerely want to see you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I know where you can get it. It's just, it's just there. This is the place you can show up where God promises he is. There's one thing that's a, a little, I'll say a little less passive. That's for lack of a better term. It requires some doing on our part that makes us more righteous, and it's only because of the righteousness in us that we can do it, okay? Who, who can guess where I'm going with this? How about avoiding sin? Is that something we can do? Can we avoid sin? Haven't we been enabled to do that by the power of the Spirit? We couldn't do it before. Dead people can't do it. Living people, born of the Spirit, can. They know what sin is. They can see it for what it is. They can avoid it. Avoiding things that you know are displeasing to God. The Holy Spirit's going to positively make you look more like Jesus. And this is what it's going to look like to you. Okay, What you're going to sort of notice on more of a regular basis. Learning to not hunger and thirst for sin. And it first happens by the painful sort of forcing yourself to avoid it and abstain from it. You know why we sin, don't you? It's not the devil made me do it. You're a liar if you say that, okay? Why do we sin? Because we like it. That's why we sin. But because of the Holy Spirit in us, we, we, we've developed something uh, you know, we would call a conscience, but it's not this impersonal force, right? It's the Holy Spirit in us that gives us a sense, don't go there. Don't you dare walk in there. Don't look at that. Don't talk to her. Whatever it is. And then you, you listen. You go, nope, not going to do it. Why? Nobody will ever know, right? But you know the Lord knows. And that matters to you. You have an awareness, a sense of that. That's what it's like to be born again. Walking by the Spirit and not by the flesh. The flesh goes, let's go! More, right? Avoiding sin is one of these things. We can't add more righteousness to ourselves, but we can certainly avoid things that are opposed to it. We can avoid things that we know are displeasing to God that do not honor him. You see sin for what it is, and you believe what God says about it is true. That's where it's at. I had a conversation with a gentleman just recently and reminding him that sin always promises what it cannot deliver. Isn't sin always doing that? It always promises something it can't deliver. 
It's a liar and a thief. It holds out in one hand something that looks attractive to us and then meanwhile is picking our pocket with the other. That's how it operates. You can't hunger and thirst for righteousness without hating sin. That's part of it. It starts with hating your sin. But it doesn't end there. You hate sin in, in yourself, but you hate sin in the world, don't you? You, know, you start with you first. It's easy to focus on all that stuff out there and everything they're doing wrong. We start here first, right? But you, you hate to see the way, the way things are. You wish it weren't so. You wish that weren't the case. You see the destruction it causes in the world, the evil causes in the world. And you long for the world to be rid of it. That's this last type of righteousness, this societal righteousness. The Christian always has enough righteousness to save him, but never enough to satisfy him. You satisfied with the way things are going out there? You can shake your head. You satisfied with the, things, the way things are? Are they honky-dory? Right? Lollipops and rainbows? No, we know things are messed up. But according to whom, right? According to God. What would make them better? Well, let's find out. The Christian always has enough righteousness to save him, but never enough to satisfy him. We know we are not satisfied with the way that things are. We're actually concerned with justice in the world. We're actually concerned as Christians with societal good. We're not just concerned with righteousness within our own four walls at home or here at church or in our Bible studies. It's not a Sunday activity. We want to see, we're hungry and thirsty for, our culture and society reflecting the character of God and being more and more conformed into the image of Christ. That's a work of the Holy Spirit that we know we can't bring about ourselves, but we're desperate for it. Are we not? We're desperate for it. We genuinely desire to see the hearts and minds of people won over by the truth of the gospel and for the very character of God to be evident in every sphere of life. Business, politics, education, nothing is exempt, nothing is off the table. Jesus does not look down at the world that he has created and bled to redeem and say, I'll take uh, that and that and that, but you can have that over there. No, mine, all of it. I only want all of it. Nothing is exempt. And so we're not just concerned with our right standing with God, with our, our justification, as we talked about, our, our righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We're not merely concerned with our own personal righteousness and sanctification, us growing in holiness, okay? We're also interested in more people being saved and for that to have a ripple effect that permeates throughout society and transforms the world by the renewing of their minds, Romans 12. We're not to be conformed to this world, Paul tells us. We're not to be conf- we're non-conformists. We are non-conformists. And what we want is a world full of people unwilling to conform to this world. We don't want conformity. We want transformation. That's a kind of righteousness we hunger and thirst for. We've got another big, you know, bowling ball word for you this morning. This is an eschatological aspect of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, where things get bigger than just ourselves as individuals. And eschatological, y'all, is just study of last things. It's end game stuff, okay? 
And when I say that, it's not end in the sense of like the end, finality, as much as it is like goal-oriented, like the whole what's it all for, right? The, the, the goal, the thing that's being achieved, the end, okay? It's bigger than ourselves, and it's something that we're part of. We long for Christ's rule and presence. We want his rule and reign to be visible in our lives, but in so many lives that it becomes unmistakable who the world belongs to, right? Remember in the first century church, their charge was to be witnesses and to take the good news of the kingdom to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? It's like a stone thrown in a, in a pond of still water that ripples out to the edges. That's the idea. Let me, let me read what Isaiah says about the coming Messiah, right? This is the kind of Jesus that, that they were expecting before he actually showed up. This is what it says about his, uh, the societal impact and rule and reign. Here's what it says. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. That's the kind of Jesus that was promised. That's the kind of Jesus we got. We're concerned with, we hunger and thirst for all three of these kinds of righteousness, an alien righteousness, our personal righteousness, and a societal righteousness, because Jesus is concerned with all three of these kinds of righteousness. None are left off his list. He's concerned with reconciling you to the God who made you through his obedience and sacrifice for you. He's concerned with you growing in holiness and being more conformed into his own image. And he is concerned with evil in the world. It's not what he wants. And he won't tolerate it. He is bringing about redemption by adding numbers to his people and by ridding the earth of his enemies. If you're falling asleep, come back, okay? He is bringing about redemption by adding to his number, to his people, and ridding the earth of his and their enemies. That, that's how he always operates, y'all. He has never not done that. So we did in the flood. And in the Old Testament... You hear all these land promises, don't you? you? Hear all the promises of the promised land that he makes to his people in the Old Testament. He promised he would bring them into a land. And sometimes as Christians, as New Testament, New Covenant believers, we look at that and we just think it's something for Israel that doesn't really pertain to us now. We tend to think that there is no land anymore. The land is, is heaven, right? We say, well, we're just strangers and sojourners here. That's true, but y'all, you need to recognize that's what he said about the people who was gonna, he was going to give a land to. That's what he said about them, strangers and sojourners here. Why? Because he was promising he was going to give them a land that other people were occupying. It wasn't theirs. He was dispossessing them off of it in order to give it to his people. 
They were in a land that was promised to them that was not their own. They were strangers and sojourners in it. So yeah, we are. We're strangers and sojourners in the land that we're being given. Everything gets bigger and better in the new covenant, doesn't it? We talk about this old covenant stuff, this Old Testament stuff. We're in the New Testament. This is the new covenant. It's better. It's bigger and better and ever-expanding. Every aspect of it is just better. Not just because it's new, it's, be- it's bigger and better. Right? God is not stopping with just one nation in the new covenant. All nations. Right? All nations will come to him. Not one land in one geographic location at one specific point in time, but every land for the rest of time. I want you to consider, is what I'm saying true? Have you connected these dots before? Don't don't believe me if it's not in here. You have my permission. I would rather you not. I sincerely would rather you not. Okay? I'd rather be thrown out in traffic than have you not believe what this says. So is it biblical? Is it biblical? And is it is it reasonable? Can you imagine? Okay? Can you just go with me for a second? All right? What Not only are we asking the question, do we find this end, this aim, this end goal as a promise to us from scripture that Christ has fulfilled? But is it also reasonable? Can we see this actually happening? Would it be a good thing? Would it be a good thing, Ryan? Think about it. Isn't the best thing in the world, isn't the best thing we could have in the world more Christians? I'm not talking about people who call themselves Christians, okay? I'm talking about like brand name, born again Christians, like we're talking about that are these things this morning. What the world needs more than anything is more people like Jesus, The world needs less people like me. The world needs a lot less people like me. Needs a lot less people. Sam, I love you, brother. It needs a lot less people like you. It needs more people like Jesus. That's what it needs. And if that were the case, how much more honest would businessmen be? How much more trustworthy and righteous would your elected officials be? How much more slow to anger would your military powers be? How much more generous and considerate would your average citizen be, your neighbor next door? What the world needs more than anything else is more people like Jesus. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. The whole problem of the world is the problem of sin. It's the fact that mankind is not right with God. That's it. That's ground floor stuff right there. Mankind's not right with God. That's the problem. We can talk specifics, we can talk about how that manifests itself in this scenario or that one, but the fundamental problem of the world is that it is an enmity with God because of sin. A desire for righteousness, then, is a desire to be right with God. It's a desire to be made right by God and to be more like God, reflecting his character. That's what we want for ourselves. It's what we want for the world. How bad do we want it? The same way we want food and water. 
knowing that even though we've already had some, we're, we still want more. We never say enough. What we want, this righteousness, means whatever keeps us from it keeps us from God and others from God. We want those things to be torn down and forgotten. We want our sinfulness and our rebellion smashed. We want to be rid of sin. We want to be rid of the influence of sin, our desire of it. We want to live free from the power of sin. That's what we want. And that's what we want for others, and we won't rest till we get it. We're starving for it. Righteousness is something the Christian always has enough of to save him but not enough to satisfy him. Listen to Jesus, y'all. Those who want it, get it. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Let's pray. The Father in heaven has often said that revival begins with the church. I think that's probably true. As we look through history, we see times of revival and we see the condition of your, of your church. We see your pulpits aflame with the truth of your word. And God, we see people hearing the pure and untarnished message of the good news of your gospel, repenting of their sin and turning in faith to you. God, we pray for a revival. Whatever, whatever that looks like, whatever that takes, God, make us willing participants of it. We pray, Lord, that your people who are called by your name would hunger and thirst for righteousness and that you would be pleased to pour out your spirit again upon droves of people advancing your kingdom as we have seen in ages past. I pray, Lord, that you would do that for your name's sake, for the good of your people, for the good of the world. In Jesus' holy name, amen.